So Isaiah 50, starting at verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him comfort me. Let him confront me, rather. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Let's uh, pray together. Our loving Father, we commit our time to you now and we pray that you would speak to us and your word would not return empty, but achieve all that you intend it to accomplish in our lives. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, this morning I want to return to a little series I began in last year's lockdown, looking at the so-called servant songs in the great prophecy of Isaiah, little cameos or portraits uh, of a shadowy figure which punctuate the second half of Isaiah, each time with this characteristic summons calling for our special attention. Behold, see, look, ponder at my servant. Now, I say so-called because in so many respects, of course, it's a travesty to detach these songs from the exquisite vision that Isaiah gives us in the second half of his prophecy. Um, you'll know and remember, of course, that under the power of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah looks into the far distance from uh, the 8th century BC to a time when he can foresee the people of God languishing in exile in a far country under God's judgment having been cast out of the land of promise and taken captive to a foreign superpower, the Babylonians. But right there in the midst of the gloom, just as it fears, it looks like the full force of God's covenant purses have come crashing down, just as it appears that God has done the unthinkable and has finally walked out on his people and filed for a divorce, as Isaiah puts it, just in the verses before the passage we're going to look at this morning. There in the pitch blackness of the abandonment that was the exile, Isaiah can see a light beginning to dawn. At first, it's the light of a political deliverance that God would pull off by raising up the great Persian king, Cyrus, who would deliver his people from bondage in Babylon and bring them back to Jerusalem, back to their homeland. Lately, Perhaps we are the first generation in quite a while who can say that we know what it's like to experience a political deliverance of sorts, a deliverance from our own little prisons with virtual walls, uh, 5Ks in every direction, captive to a malevolent fiefdom of small children and homeschooling, Microsoft Teams. It's been a long time since politicians have had that much say over our personal freedom and well-being, isn't it? 
But of course, it pales by comparison to what God's people would experience in Babylon, an alienation and suffering that was not so much uh, material necessarily. Many would in fact prosper and do quite well for themselves, but an alienation from their homeland. And of course, only a displaced people group or a Holocaust survivor like Eddie Jaku can really know what that sort of pain is like. But even more than that, an alienation from the beating heart of their national life and identity and worship as the people of the living God, that great city of the king himself, of which glorious things are spoken, Zion, city of our God, the holy mountain of the Lord, now lying in ruins, the distant memory of which caused them to weep as they sat by the waters of Babylon. But Isaiah can see that as wonderful as it would be for the Israelites to return to their homeland, as, to be able to sing once again the songs of Zion, Isaiah can see that it's one thing to take God's people out of Babylon, out of the land of idolatry, but if God is going to get the land of idolatry out of them, as it were, it's going to require a far deeper, far more extensive deliverance from a spiritual exile of which their political exile was only a symbol. Deliverance from the malevolent fiefdom of sin and death. Remember, of course, Isaiah was the prophet who right at the beginning of his ministry came face to face with the very glory of the Lord himself seated on the throne beneath the, the seraphim. And was so crushed by the heavy burden of the Lord's holiness that he in instinctively knew that his very lips had to be sanctified from the stain of his own sin and guilt before he could even open his mouth to utter the word of the Lord. And so just as it is today that uh, a person who is far more acutely conscious of their own sin and guilt before the living God than of any inconvenience of a lockdown, for instance, just as that person perhaps longs to speak much more urgently and enthusiastically of their spiritual saviour than of any politician who has given back given them back their restaurants and overseas travel. So perhaps it's no surprise that in the midst of his expansive vision of what God is going to do for his people, that Isaiah speaks much more vividly and enthusiastically of a coming servant who will bring that deep and lasting and necessary deliverance for God's people than he does of anything that Cyrus will do. It is an aside, but it's a good little test for us, isn't it? You know, what's really getting you buzzing at the moment? I've got to say that in the few face-to-face -face encounters I've had with brothers and sisters whom I haven't seen in person for months, it turns out I don't have much to talk about other than lockdown and what Gladys the Fallen or Dominic the Fearless or Dominic the Impetuous, depending on your perspective, or some other painfully cautious premier might or might not do and what might life might or might not look like in the months ahead, how dull has my life become when that captivates me more than what the servant has done and will continue to do in my life now and into eternity. So perhaps with greater profundity and clarity than any other Old Testament prophet, Isaiah can see well into the future beyond Cyrus and his attention zeroes in on a figure popping up on the horizon, this mysterious servant of the Lord one who is truly Israel, 
who in loving fellowship with God and perfect obedience to his will lived up to everything that Israel as a nation failed to be and in living up to everything Israel had failed to be would pull off the most magnificent worldwide spiritual deliverance to the catastrophe of our universal captivity to sin and death. Of course, with 2020 hindsight, we know that these little poems are portraits of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that place in John's Gospel? It's very easy to miss. There's a place where John quotes Isaiah in the, in the words from the last of the servant songs in chapter 53, and then follows them with words from Isaiah's commissioning that very occasion when he was struck down by the awesome holiness of the Lord seated on his throne. And what does John say? It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke of him. And he doesn't say he foresaw his glory. No, he saw it with his own eyes. Whose glory did he see there in the temple? wasn't some different Old Testament BC kind of deity, but it was the very Lord who himself would one day come in the flesh as a servant to rescue his people from their bondage to sin and death. This morning we briefly come to the third of these so-called songs in Isaiah chapter 50. It's unique among the four in the sense that here the servant speaks about himself and the other songs the Lord is speaking to him or of him or Isaiah is speaking of him. But here we get a, a beautiful picture of his own intimate communion with his father in the unique and deeply costly vocation that he would undertake on our behalf. And as we read this, we should imagine these words to be, in a sense, Jesus' own commentary on those extraordinary little flashes throughout the Gospels where he is on his knees in private, just he and his heavenly Father bearing his soul, pleading on our behalf, seeking wisdom and strength for the impossibly heavy burden that he would carry, offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, as Hebrew puts it, to him who is able to save him from death. When we hear those words, we immediately think of those hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, or the chapter-length transcript of what was perhaps part of that prayer in John 17. But don't forget those many occasions when Jesus is said just to slip off quietly from the crowds and his disciples so that he can be alone with God. Or that occasion, even as early as the age of 12, when his distressed parents lost track of him, only to find him sometime later in the temple, seated among the teachers. Do you remember what he said to his parents? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What an extraordinary thing for a 12-year-old boy to say to his parents. Well, look here at this son of the father, this servant's own commentary on why that time with his father was so important and precious to him as he came to understand his own identity and calling. Verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Morning by morning he wakens me. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. 
the image here makes you think back to Isaiah's early, early, earlier description of that child to be born, the son whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And then we might think to the Lord Jesus, who every time he opened his mouth astonished those who heard, for he spoke not as the scribes, but as one with authority. Indeed, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the temple guards testified to the Pharisees. But it was not just the authority of Jesus's words that stopped people in their tracks. They did do that. But no, there was also something deeply infectious about his words, something profoundly attractive. So that when he took up the scroll of Isaiah and announced the fulfillment of his great prophecy of good news for the poor and freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, it wasn't simply the authority of the words that amazed those who heard so much as the graciousness of them, we are told. It's as if his lips, as the psalmist puts it, were anointed with grace. So that when he called his disciples, they were like sheep who could not but follow because they somehow recognised the voice of Jesus, a good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. Where else have we to go? said Peter to Jesus, when you alone have words of eternal life. He knows the word that sustains the weary, the truth that will set you free. It's extraordinary, isn't it? If there's anything that lockdown has taught us, it's that people desperately want a counsellor, a lifeline, especially when everything in life starts to unravel, plans, relationships, job, health. But the thing is, when people come to me in that state, and and you probably find this too, when people come to me not so much for advice or a word of wisdom or an exam hint, but in real desperate need, deep anguish of soul, more often than not, I feel like I haven't got anything to say. I'm normally lost for words. And that's probably why people say in their grief, I don't want you to say anything necessarily. I just want you to listen. And if we're wise, that's what we do. But surely it's not because they don't actually want you to say something that will really give them the answer, the happy ending, that will really comfort them and really lift them up out of their pit, out of their distress. I mean, if only you could. No, it's because they know you can't that they say instead, please just listen. But here is one who far more than even the wisest counsellor, truly knows the word that sustains the weary. One who can see right into our souls and bring a word to bear that's perfectly matched to who we are in the midst of our deepest needs and fears and longings of our hearts. A wonderful counsellor whose lips are anointed with grace. But you ask, how on earth did he learn to do that? Where did he receive such wisdom? Well, he tells us. Morning by morning, he says, my heavenly father wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. It was not wisdom he acquired through some miraculous instantaneous osmosis of the sort of which, for which you pray during Stuvac. Not through some superhuman zap from his divine nature to his human nature. No, 
rather in the power and intimacy of the spirit of his father who rested upon him. It was wisdom acquired through years and years of patient, prayerful meditation and reflection upon all that was said of him and his vocation in passages like this and so many more throughout the whole Hebrew scriptures. Morning after morning after morning, he grew in wisdom and stature, Luke tells us. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, Jesus said. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Morning by morning, he instructed me so that one day I could speak that word that truly sustains the weary. But not only would he learn this way to be the wonderful counsellor his father had called him to be, but he would also learn this way what it would mean for him to be the Prince of Peace. Verse 5. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, schooling in unimaginable suffering and humiliation, made so much more unimaginably worse by the fact that he is called not to retaliate as he would be entitled to retaliate as one backed by all the power and authority and holiness of the living God himself. No, never did he assert his rights, never did he plead his innocence when his disciples drew their swords, he tells them to put them away. And when one of those disciples then denies him three times, he merely turns to him and looks in pity. And then even at the end, when his enemies have done their worst, he does not call down fire to consume them in their scandalous blasphemy, but instead pleads for their forgiveness. He would learn obedience to his heavenly father, you see, not in spite of but through the very suffering that his father had called him to endure. Verse 7. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. With loud cries and tears, he offered up prayers and petitions to the one who could save him from death, you see. Never doubt it for a second that he would be heard and vindicated because of his reverence mission. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. Behold, there it is, left out for some reason by the NIV. Behold, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? A wonderful counsellor who would also be schooled by his father in all it would mean and all it would take to be the Prince of Peace. But more than that, of course, when we, when we come to the next and the last of these songs over the next two weeks in chapter 53. But before we close, we shouldn't miss the implied exhortation in this 
commentary of the servant as he meditates upon his own vocation in the company of his heavenly father. It's an exhortation that Isaiah himself actually makes explicit in verse 10 after the servant is finished. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of the servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. If that exhortation were to be made explicit by the servant himself, perhaps it would go something like this. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Maybe that's an exhortation that we need to hear afresh again this morning. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for his intimacy with you that was so fully on display throughout the Gospels. And we thank you, Father, for this commentary on that communion with you where you schooled him to be the wonderful counsellor, the one who would truly provide and offer and reach out that word that sustains the weary, the words of eternal life. Please comfort us by that truth and by his words once again this morning. And please remind us and reassure us of all that he has done on our behalf to be the one who truly brings us peace. Father, we can never fathom the depths of what he did for us on our behalf. And so we lift up our prayers to you with gratitude that far exceeds even what words are capable of expressing. In Jesus' name. Amen.